where I'm from. So I have a question. Yeah. So who is the headliner here? <laughs> Roger Billings. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Dr. And coming R. in in number two <laughs> is R. Billings. Okay, well. Nah. I was very excited to see the Einkorn guys. Mm -hmm. That's fun. A lot of people have ordered Einkorn, and I hope you're going to let us all hear how you did with it. But you know, it is something that gets under your skin. It's really good. Mm -hmm. And in your belly. That's <laughs> true. My belly's private. <laughs> Leave my belly alone. But it is good. Okay. So um, Tobias kind of got me excited about yeah. these new technologies and you try to figure out where the market's mm -hmm. going and what's going to happen. And as we start a new school year, I thought it'd be very appropriate if we started on an inventioneering adventure. Okay. Really makes sense, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. I... Uh, I'm so grateful that in school, my teachers and the science fair inspired me to get very involved in science and the hydrogen car, and we've talked a lot about that. And invariably, we'll talk more about it as time goes on. But uh, then, because of mainly the success with the hydrogen car, my last week at the university, and remember, I went to school to learn how to build hydrogen cars. And so I didn't know what to major in. I said, I'd like to major in hydrogen cars. We don't have one of those. <laughs> and so I asked different scientists at the university who, what they thought I should major in because I wanted to do hydrogen cars. And the chemistry professor said, well, it's an easy question. It's got to be chemistry. <laughs> Did you know that hydrogen is a chemical? <laughs> and that's what we teach students. We teach you about hydrogen all about. We can teach you more about hydrogen than anybody. You need to be a chemist. Okay, oh, well, that makes sense. And then I asked a physicist. He says, oh, we are the ones, right, Dr. Murray? We are the ones that know how the universe fits together and how it works. They can maybe identify it, but boy, we can tell you how it all really happens. I thought, well, this is going to be a tough decision. So I asked a chemical engineer. And he said, don't mess with those steady state sciences. You need to get the <laughs> dynamic stuff. You need to be an engineer. Mm -hmm. And went on, electrical engineer told me, you should do electrical engineering because we developed the whole control system and in the car, that's the most important part. And finally, the mechanical engineer, yeah, if it wasn't for us, there'd be no engines, there'd be no cars. <laughs> so I majored in all five. <laughs> wow. And uh, took me a little while to get through college. But my last week, we had a visitor at the university where I was studying that happened to be Mr. William Lear. Bill Lear, the guy that made the Learjet. He's the guy who started Motorola. He's the guy who started Lear Siegler. He did a lot of things. But uh, he was an amazing inventioneer. Of course, the inventioneer term hadn't been invented yet, but he sure knew what it meant, and he was sure doing it. And he was looking for someone at the university to mentor. And the vice president over research for the university brought him into the little lab where I was doing my hydrogen research and introduced me to him and said, Mr. Lear is looking for a protege. That's not English, is it? <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't know what a protege was. So what's a protege? <laughs> That's someone that he would mentor. Right. 
And so uh, a week later, one week later, I'd finished up my classwork, and Mr. Lear flew in and picked me and my little family up and flew us back to where he lived, and we moved right into his home. And I would shadow him all day, every day, and he would teach me the art of inventioneering. Still wasn't named that, uh, but he sure taught it. And it was somewhere in that relationship that one day he shared with me that he was trained by Thomas Edison. And I thought, you know, that's quite a heritage. Thomas Edison, Bill Lear, and me, and now me training you. So you guys have a good heritage, and I expect great things. Well, anyway, I learned how to take an idea, to process the idea, to really make sure it was worth effort, and then to make things happen. And I thought it would be really interesting if for the next couple weeks, if we were to go down the process on one of the real projects that I've been involved in, so you can kind of see how this all comes together. And you'll be surprised. The way I learned this was by watching Bill Lear do it. it it's, you can study theory, but when it comes to inventioneering, there's nothing like seeing it done and learning by doing. And so that's kind of what I'd like to do. Can you tell us your secrets? You all right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's going to be this way all night. <laughs> so we need to, we need to get into the, the story by getting into the background. Um, one of the important projects that I've been involved in was the development of client-server computing. And I had the privilege of building one of the very, very first personal computers. In fact, um, many say that it was the very first real personal computer because it wasn't a thing to hook to your TV and play games. It was actually something you could do word processing. And yes, clear back in 1977, we had email. And we had the Billings word processor that became word perfect. A lot of things in this little computer. But I built it so that I could show how you could do client-server computing. And client-server computing was just starting to be accepted. It was starting to catch on. And I had other visions of grandeur. For example, I believed that we could use computers to accelerate learning, to accelerate it in an amazing way like the world had never seen. Early in the Billings computer days, a very brilliant educator scientist came to me and told me about this idea he had to be able to use computers to accelerate learning, but he didn't have funding. And so I donated Billings computers to him, and he started a, a company to actually use those. And if any of you have heard of Western Governors University, mm -hmm. the founder of that university is the guy I'm talking about. And this was the first big online university, and it kind of was a, an important step. But I had ideas of how I could take online study to a whole nother level. But unfortunately, there was a problem. And the problem was the computer networks were way too slow. I wanted to be able to film really nice video and 
and have the best teachers teach the best students mm -hmm. how to do these various subjects. And to do that, we needed a network much, much faster than existed. Right. Now, at this point in time, networks look something like this. This is a piece of coax. Uh, I'm not sure everybody knows what coax is. Coax is a type of wire, okay? And I've got a figure to kind of show you how they make coax. This is what coax looks like. There is a cable, and around the outside, there is a braid made out of copper. That is a shield. It blocks all of the outside radiation and keeps the signal inside. Inside the copper, there's uh, insulation, and then in the very center of the insulation, there's one copper wire. I learned about coax when I was a ham radio operator. If you have a big transmitter and you're trying to talk to someone halfway around the world, you've got to be able to send out a signal, and you've got to be able to receive it. Well, coax would carry a signal out to your antenna like no other wire could. It was just really, really amazing. So when they start building networks, with a thing called Ethernet, they used a piece of coax. And I have a roll of coax here. Coax wire has some coax connectors on it, some special connectors. But this wire is able to carry a high frequency signal much better than regular wire. And so I want to show you a diagram of the first uh, thin Ethernet network. And take a look at this. You've got one big wire down the middle there. It's called the coax trunk. And this big wire ran all the way through a company. And then every so often, they would stick a connector in the middle of the coax, and it would allow the signal to go through, but also it would allow your computer to connect on. Okay, I want to show you this T-connector. It's called a T-connector, and here's a couple of them. So on top is where you'd hook your computer, and then the coax would come into one side and exit out the other side. So literally, all the computers on a network were all connected together on one wire. And so it was just like when we got our first telephone at our home. Uh -huh. It was called the party line. <laughs> You had a party and on. the reason that we called it a party line is every time anybody on our street would get a call, it was a party. <gasps> oh, quick, quick, quick. You, if, if it had ring, ring, short ring, ring, then it meant it was for our family. Okay. But if it had some other ring, it meant it was for some other family. Then we ran even faster for the phone. <laughs> Only then you grab it with your hand over Oh my goodness. And the party was listening in without letting them hear you breathe because you were all on the same line. Well, uh, with the Ethernet network on, on coax, started out with a big round coax, and they figured out how to do it on a little one, which was easier to run. So they called that thin coax. That network is how networking began. And Miraculously, because it was coax, they could send signals at very high frequencies. Now remember, when you send information over a wire, you can't shout on it. You know, we used to do that with tin cans and a wire or a string. We'd tell them, hello, can you hear me? You know? Paper towel roll. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we used to do. Is that where you did <laughs> yeah. it? Okay. Well, anyway, the way that you put data on a wire 
is you put a voltage on, like you turn it on, there's a voltage, then you turn it off. And if it's a fast voltage, then it would be a one, and if it's a no voltage, then it was a zero. And the computer would do a million characters per second. Sounds like a lot. Sounds like a lot, doesn't it? Of course, to send one letter of the al alphabet took eight characters, eight bits. And so all of a sudden, that means you only have 100,000 per second. And you have all these computers all trying to do it. So you're trying to get a turn to use the wire. It's like a party line. When you say, okay, get some information for me from the server, it would have to listen to that wire and see if someone else was talking. And if no one was talking, then it would talk to the server. And quite often, two people would start talking at exactly the same time. And guess what happened? A collision. An e famous Ethernet collision. Now, can you, can you understand this? If there's only a couple people working, everybody's gone home, just that guy and me, and we're both talking to the server, there's not a very good chance we're going to have a collision because it's just us, and we've got all of that wire to ourselves. But during the day when everybody's there, you start having a lot of collisions because people are all talking at the same time. And lo and behold, when you get a lot of people using Ethernet within ThinkOx with these collisions, you start getting so many collisions, they have to keep retrying, retrying, then you get more collisions, and it became a really, really, really big challenge. And so most of that megabit of bandwidth, a million bits per second, was wasted. So another thing, I remember these connectors, these T-connectors, uh, every once in a while you'd be sitting at your computer and the network would stop responding. First thing you'd do is crawl in the back of your computer and just wiggle this. <laughs> then it would start working again. <laughs> had a hard time. And anyone that remembers these days, you know, remember how we did that. Well, I'm sitting here thinking, man, that is just way too slow to do education, to do, I mean, you could never watch a movie over the network. It'd take forever to download a movie. It'd take like a month to download a movie that you could watch, and just too slow. So then the industry graduated to a whole new kind of cable. This is not coax. This is called Cat5. And if I can hold this wire open and we can get a downward shot on it, you can see there's four pairs of wire, brown and white, green and white, blue and white, orange and white, and these are twisted pairs of wire. Each one of these is two wires, and so you can send four signals down, down this cable. And so people started replacing the coax with Category 5 cable. Now, Category 3 cable was the wire we used for telephone systems when they were wiring those in the building. So they had to make it a little bit better to be able to send these high-speed signals down, and by making them just right and pushing the electronics absolutely to the limit, they were able to increase it to 10 million characters per second, which was a heck of a lot better. <laughs> 10 million characters per second, but not nearly enough to be able to play a video lesson for a lot of students. So we still had a problem. Now. With Category 5, you didn't use the T-connectors. Every computer 
had one cable going to it, and the cable went back then to what we called a concentrate. Excuse me, we called it a hub. <laughs> Let me show you a diagram of a star topology network. Do you see why we call this a star? So the computers all around this hub, they all have a wire back to the hub. And this was definitely an improvement, but you still had the same problem because if two computers started to talk at the same time, you'd have a collision. So you still had the collision problem. And when anyone would send to the hub, the hub would then send it out to everybody. So it was, a, it was like you're wired to everybody. You'd have all these collisions. And it was 10 megabit per second. But if you had a heavy network, you could probably only get it up to about 6 tenths of that, or about 6 megabit. And it was just way too slow for the things I wanted to do with education, with client-server computing. And so I thought, you know what? If there was a way to speed this up, we could do some really neat things. It would change the world if we could speed this up. Instead of 10 megabit, if I could make an invention so there'd be no collisions, it would like triple the throughput of this cable when a lot of people were on it, which is when it really is limited. So I thought about, is there a way to eliminate the collisions? I also thought, 10 megabit, that doesn't sound very fast. I wonder if I can make it go 20. And then I realized 20 wouldn't give me what I need for online education. 50? I don't know. I don't think there's any way you can put 50 megahertz in here, 50 million characters per second. There's just no way. And still wouldn't really be enough for a lot of students. Doesn't sound so I'm thinking about it like this. And then it came to me, I know, it's 100 million characters per second. That's the way we need 100. Yeah. And I thought, you know what? We need to develop a way to put 100 million characters on this cable. And he said, maybe on coax. I said, no, coax, no. we we got to figure out how to do it with this because all the buildings are getting wired with this Cat5. we got to work with the wire that's there if we want it to catch on. <coughs> and they said, you will never get 100 million characters per second through that wire, no matter how hard you try. And then they said those dirty, nasty words. <laughs> It is impossible. Those are, that's your cue, isn't it? <laughs> that's your cue. I don't like to hear it's impossible. No. And I said, it's impossible, you think? <laughs> yeah. It's the physics are impossible. We, we can barely get 10, 10 megabit through. How could you get 100? <coughs> it's impossible. I said, well, it's impossible. And so I went home and I thought a lot about it. I did some reading. I did some study. It's impossible. It's impossible. I said, so if 100 megabits impossible, you know what I'm going to do? No. I'm going to do 1,000 megabits. Of course megabit. you are. <laughs> I'll bet I could shoot 1,000 million bits through that. That would be a billion bits per second. Now that would make online education work. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Well, a lot of people laughed. 
And I found out that I was in for a real challenge because there are a lot of problems in sending data that fast. Now, I'm going to give you a clue. I'm going to give you a fast forward. A lot of the money I used to create a Cellus was because I built a networking system that would do a thousand megabit per second or a gigabit. <laughs> if you've heard of gigabit ethernet, yeah. it was something that came out of the work that I did. I and my team, that is. So I want to kind of take you through it because it's an interesting story. So I started like a good inventioner would, and I thought, if I could make this work at a gigabit, people would line up to buy it. It wouldn't be hard to sell. They would buy it. Mm -hmm. But there's a couple things that it has to be able to do besides going fast. First of all, it's got to work through the cable that's already in all the buildings because the cost of pulling out wires and putting in new ones is prohibitive. It would be very hard to sell if I say, I, I want to sell you this, it's fast, but you have to rewire your building. It's expensive to rewire a building. So it's got to work over the existing wire. Next thing is, it's got to be able to go 100 meters. That's the length of a football field mm -hmm. because that was the standard for Ethernet. So cables were up to 100 meters long in many buildings. So that meant if I was going to do this, I couldn't go 10 feet or 20 feet. It had to be able to go 100 meters. So I'm just writing down the requirements of what I've got to meet right. to make this be a commercial product. And, you know, making it go 100 meters was almost as impossible as making it go at a gigabit speed. But that's the goal. That's what is going to make this really successful. And if we can do that, we're going to make a lot of money. <laughs> but it will also make it possible to be able to use this in education in a really, really major way. So how do you start? I got an idea. Well, first of all, I've got to have something to put in a computer so that I can plug this cable in. Now, there's a, there's a special connector and this is a little hard to see, but maybe some of you will recognize. It's called an RJ45 connector. It's a square connector that this cable goes into. And there's a connection for all eight strands. This connector is basically what they invented for telephones. This was used in telephones, but it only had four conductors. These have eight, because we use eight pair. And so I had this connector, so I needed to make a circuit board that I could put in the computer that this could plug into. And that's where we started. At the time, uh, computers were not as fast or as modern as they are now. We have in, in our desktop computers a thing called a PCI bus. A PCI bus is a, a bus you can plug a, uh, an accessory into that transfers data to the computer very, very fast. Well, when I decided to do this, there was no PCI bus. It sure would have helped if they got some of this stuff invented sooner. <laughs> but all we had was the forerunner of PCI, which was called the ISA bus, ISA. The ISA bus was a little slot that you could plug a circuit board into and hook up something like a network or whatever you wanted to hook up to a computer. But there was no... ISA bus board that you could buy 
that would do anything near a thousand megabit. And so what do you do? You, you can't buy it. We didn't really have the internet yet. In fact, this was going to really help make the internet. So I did the only thing I could. I ordered a book all about the ISABUS. And I started designing my own board. Of course you did. Yeah. Now it turns out <clears throat> that I didn't know how to design an ISABUS board. It was kind of a new thing for me. And so I had, to, I had to study. Actually, I spent about three months learning how to design an ISA bus board. And then I designed a circuit board. And I laid out where the little wires and traces would go on the circuit board. You know how on a circuit board you have traces that are made with a photographic process? And then I sent it out to a shop to make the blank board for me when I got it back. Then I personally stuck the parts in and soldered them by hand. And everybody ought to learn how to solder. So is a bus something somebody drives? A bus is how you get to school. Okay. No. <laughs> a bus in a, in a computer is a connector on a board that you plug in and it has a bunch of wires. An ISA bus has about 100 wires and they're little pads that slide into a connector and I'm going to show you some of these uh, in, okay. in the next discussion. I'm going okay. to show you my ISA bus board okay. that, uh, that I designed and which we then built. And I, I had to have a name for my project. Hmm. And I thought, okay, so Ethernet goes 10 megabit. I'm going to go 1,000 megabit. <laughs> so I'm going to call it Wideband because it's a much wider bandwidth, okay? okay? Mm -hmm. So I trademarked the name Wideband, and I went to work on making this ISABUS board. Well, it was really, really challenging to get a board designed that would do the things that I wanted it to do. And, of course, I could connect the wire. Then I had to make a board for the other side of the server, so I had something to talk to. Okay. And if I just wanted one computer talking to the server, that'd be easier. But I had to also have something in the middle so lots of computers could talk to the server. And I didn't want to do a hub like Ethernet because I knew I had to get rid of the collisions. Mm -hmm. And so one of the big things we're going to talk about is collisions and, and why those happen and how I was able to come up with a way to get rid of them. And I think that the fact that the collisions were eliminated from a star network was a really big deal uh, in the industry. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go forward. So let's back up now. So I needed to design a board. And when a board was designed, then I need something else. If you have a circuit board and you can plug it into your computer, you're halfway there. But the other half that you need is a computer program so the computer can talk to that board. And if you have an operating system like Windows or like Linux or like OS X from Apple, the program that lets the operating system talk to the network board is called a driver. And a driver says when the computer wants to send data, it 
calls this driver program, which is a program that didn't exist, so I had to write it, right. that would then load the data into my board and shoot it out over the network. So I had to have a driver, and I had to have it for all the different kinds of computers that were on the market. And that's when I gave up. Right? This is a shorter story that's than really we were planning. <laughs> And you that's know, not, that's a false story. the reality is, it's not false, it's accurate. The reality <laughs> is, I give up many times. Uh-huh. But fortunately, the next day I changed my mind. <laughs> because I kept up? running into insurmountable obstacles. When I realized I had to design a new circuit board, they call it a network adapter, I figured I could spend my whole life learning how to do that and not know how. I'm not going to do that. So what do you mean by give up? You actually said I'm yeah, not doing I, this anymore? I, this, I'm going to do something else. I decided I was going to raise horses <laughs> one night. <laughs> and the next morning, thinking about shoveling manure, and everything, okay, I'm back. Hey, it's not that bad. But, you know, every time you run into an insurmountable problem, you want to give up. And then... You know, your mind works on it, and you study, and you read, and you research. And with the Internet, it's so wonderful because you can find information so much, so much more. And so we kept inching forward and inching forward and inching forward. And eventually, I was able to design a circuit board that used the ISA bus that would be able to talk to a cable. And... um, then the challenge was getting the driver written. And the driver um, needed to be something special. The, the design for a driver was available for me to look at if I was going to do Ethernet. But Ethernet would just cause collisions. And the big thing about Ethernet, the, the genius of Ethernet, is that when two computers are trying to talk at the same time, and they have a collision, so the data gets mixed up and the other side can't read what you're trying to say. The genius was, instead of just trying again and trying again, you just keep colliding, 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 every time you have a collision, and the collision's detected by the circuitry, you back up and you get a random number and you wait for that many milliseconds, and then you try again, so one would go before the other. And if someone's talking, you listen to the wires. Oh, someone's talking. You wait your turn. Okay, so I needed to figure out a way so that we would not need to ever have any collisions. And I decided that the way to do that was in the hub. I want to look at that star network again. And if you see, we've got the computers around the outside, and all the wires go down to the hub. What the hub does is when it gets a signal from any computer, it sends it out to all the computers. So if one comes in from two or more computers at a time, it just sends out garbage of all of them talking once. It's like the party line. If someone was already talking and someone else talking, it just got really confusing. Mm -hmm. And so it was a problem. So I said, how can I make that hub intelligent enough that there wouldn't be a collision. And I came up with an interesting little idea. In electronics, there is a a part, a computer chip, that you can buy 
that is called a FIFO. Sounds like an instrument I play. I used to play the FIFO, but <laughs> it actually is a little chip that has the property of being able to store information. Mm -hmm. Only we call it FIFO, which stands for first in, first out. So if you start sending it information, it puts it into memory, and then when you read it out the other side, it comes out in the order it received it. It's just an interesting little chip, and I read about those, and I thought, that's the answer. What I'll do on every one of those wires coming in from the different computers, mm -hmm. on my hub, I can't call it a hub anymore, so I call it a concentrator. I invented that name, a concentrator. On every wire coming in, I put a FIFO chip. And what would happen then is the data started coming in, it would go into the FIFO and it would start filling it up. The FIFO had a pin that had what, what an engineer would call an empty flag. If there was no data in the chip, that pin would be zero. But as soon as it got the first character into it, that pin would go to one. So I'd have to build a little computer inside my concentrator so that if any FIFO had data, it would read it and then send it out one at a time so it never, ever, ever is impossible to have a collision. That makes sense? Mm -hmm. So I had this little chip. And then I would send it out to everybody over the network the same. But I would address it for which computer we were trying to send it to. Okay, so I had an idea of how to eliminate collisions. I was going to put a FIFO on every channel inside the hub, and that would mean there would be no collisions there. And you say, well, now, wait a minute. That doesn't sound like such a big deal. <laughs> Guys, mm. that completely changed networking. Yes, it, did. it completely changed networking for everybody. People told you it couldn't be done and, again. Yeah, couldn't be done, but we did it. Yeah. But then I ran into a really interesting problem. We needed a little controller inside the concentrator to look at those flags on all of the FIFOs, because I had a FIFO for every channel coming in. And as soon as it started receiving data, we needed to forward it, but if one's already being forwarded, then we needed to wait. And trying to manage all of that took a controller chip. And the controller chip that was available to me is a thing called a, and don't get confused by all the names, scientists, engineers love acronyms. <laughs> we call them FPGAs, Filled Programmable Gator A. And what that really means is it was a chip that I could put the program in. I buy the chips like blanks, and then I get a special machine, and one time in the factory, I configure it into the kind of CPU or controller unit I wanted. So I got one, I put it on my board, and that was gonna control all of these pins, or monitor all the pins of the FIFOs, the first in, first out memories, and then as soon as someone had memory, I'd read that and send it out, and then I'd read the next one, then I'd read the next one, and that was gonna eliminate collisions. So I had it all figured out, which turned out to be the easy part. <laughs> so then, what does it take to make something like this work? 
And if you think that just coming up with a bare bones idea like that is going to change the world, then you must be on her planet because our planet's <laughs> not like that. No. Mm -mm. You got to have a good idea, but then you got to be ready to pay your dues and put in the effort. Now, as we go into the next chapter of this adventure, I'm going to show you the isoboard. I'm going to show you the concentrator. And I'm going to show you how proud I am that I could design those and we could get them made. And then I'm going to tell you what happened. <laughs> you can't go gigabit over a wire. You cannot send data at a gigabit rate. And some very, very brilliant people told me that. Brilliant people that know physics. In fact, one in particular was a PhD trained at MIT, one of the strongest schools in the world, if not the strongest. Yes, I'm biased. <laughs> anyway, and uh, he explained why with the physics it just wasn't possible. Uh, Dr. Ron Crane was the guy that made the original Ethernet over coax work. He worked for a company called 3Com, and in my opinion, he's really the father of, of Ethernet. Uh, a very, very brilliant scientist, and he was the one that explained to me why it could never work. And so next time, we're going to get into why it never worked. And by the way, Ron Crane passed away recently, but uh, he became a very good, dear friend of mine, and we'll have a lot more to say about him before this is all done. So here it is. Some of you are saying, wow, this is way too deep for me. I'm not going to watch Science Live anymore. Some of them are loving it, though. <laughs> but I want you to see how you do it. If, yeah. if you want to do a big project like this and succeed at it, this is what you have to do. You have to start at the conceptual yes. stage, and you start making a lot of designs and things before you even know what you're doing. And later on, when you study and learn a little more about it, you say, okay, that was stupid. <laughs> Only you don't say it out loud, you just think it. You look at me like that? <laughs> what am I, supposed I to know think? what you're thinking. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> That's not a social thought. <laughs> oh. But you don't give up. And it always looks like it's impossible before it works. The hydrogen car was that way, client server computing was that way. Wideband networking was that way, and certainly Acellus was that way. And remember, this was all so that we would have a network fast enough so that we could do Acellus. And interestingly, this not only gave us a network that was fast enough to do something like Acellus, but as it turns out, it also gave us the money to be able to develop it. Mm -hmm. So sometimes, Sticking to your guns and not giving up is how dreams happen. Now, the Wright brothers had a few problems. Many people told them, you should stick with bicycles. <laughs> but you know, once you get the idea of flying in your blood and you think maybe you can do it, <laughs> how do you just ride a bicycle anymore? And once, in my mind, I was flying along at gigabit speed. Thousand megabit. How could I ever go back to 10? How could I ever do it in my mind? Bill Lear took his wife, Moya, on 
his first ride in a Learjet. Remember the story? He set up four chairs in the kitchen, and he put her in the right seat because that's the co-pilot. He sat in the left seat in front because that was the pilot, and he taxied out, and he took off, and he had this great flight. He flew the Learjet that day, and that's when he started the company, and that little airplane changed the world. But boy, he ran into a lot of obstacles. So if it was easy, I promise you someone else would have done it. <laughs> if, it if it was easy, we wouldn't need you. But thank goodness it's not. <laughs> but the flip side of that, and probably the most important thing I want to hear you, I want you to hear me say today, it's not easy, but it's doable. And I knew I could do it. I knew I was going to have to solve some serious physics problems. If Ron Crane says it can't be done, then there's something wrong with the physics because he is no dummy. On the other hand, it can't be done the way people are doing it. And the physics problem I ran into makes it impossible to send a signal going that fast through the wire because it doesn't want to go down the wire. It wants to go out into space, and there's nothing to keep it in the wire, so we had a real problem. And wait till you hear what we did. So I hope you come back next time. We'll talk all about it. And you better be careful. You're going to end up being inventioners. <laughs> That's right. Like her. Yeah. See you next time. Thank you. Thank you.